0: Let me uh, add my welcome if you're new. Uh, my name is Eric Hoffman, I'm the executive pastor here at Fellowship Franklin, so glad you're here with us. Many of us are scattered all throughout the country, some at the beach and all, all those different places, but just mindful of those of you who have family uh, on the East Coast and uh, who are battling some of those things and uh, a lot of concerns over there, so we're, we're praying as a, a faith family for them as well this morning. Well, if you would, if you would uh, turn to Mark 3, this is where we're going to pick up today. But if you're new with us and you're just joining us today, uh, we've been walking through the book of Mark. And so here at Fellowship, we walk through, teach it uh, expositionally, where we walk through a passage of Scripture verse by verse. And so today we come to Mark 3, but I want to do a little bit of review of where we've been up to this point. So you think about it in sections, the first section was Jesus coming on the scene and establishing his identity of who he is as the the son of God, the sent from the father. He is the the God-man that is to live among us. Second section we looked at was establishing his authority. So out of his identity, he begins establishing his authority where he is Healing illnesses and the sick are coming to them, and then he is forgiving sins. As as so out of his identity, he is forgiving sins, and then he is also casting out demons and, and exercising his authority. And then, in this third section, just before chapter three, we see this conflict begin to arise. So, in every part before we got here, Jesus, when he would speak a command or exercise his authority, what happened? Instantly the person was healed or the, you know, later in the, in the gospels, the, the storm ceased or the demons were cast out. But then you have this uh, episode with the, the leper and he heals him. And then he tells him what don't go and tell. And then what does the leper do? He goes and tells. And at the same time, you also have this rising opposition against Jesus of those who are coming alongside the scribes and Pharisees who are are now in conflict with him, actually planning against him, their opposition. So now you have this conflict arising. So this is really important about the religious leaders. See, they are acknowledging that he is a teacher with authority, they are recognizing that he is healing, they're they're recognizing that he has power, that he has some authority. But why don't they follow him? Why don't they, why don't they trust him? Why don't they believe in him? Well, see, I think all around our world, we can see examples of this where someone knows the right information. They're close to life-changing information, but yet they're not themselves changed. I was uh, talking with a friend this week and, and he had a uh, lunch with a pediatrician and they went to like a healthier place. And the pediatrician looks at him and goes, "Wow, well, I don't know what I'm going to be able to order here because I don't eat vegetables. A pediatrician, y'all, who doesn't eat vegetables is a real problem. Why? He spends his entire day telling our kids to do what? Eat their vegetables. So he has the right information, and he's around life-changing information, but yet doesn't partake. Well, fast forward through thousands of years, clear representation of who Jesus is, what he is calling people to, and yet people fall short of actually turning trust to him. It's interesting to note that every major world religion recognizes Jesus as someone special. And some even go farther than just someone special. Some say that he is son of God. Some they say that he is the highest of prophets. Some would say all these things. But what stops them short of actually saying that he is savior, he is their Lord, and they put their trust in him? See, I think at the core, when Jesus calls his disciples, there's two things that need to happen. One, we need to be clear of who he is. And two, we need to be clear of what does following Jesus actually mean. And so this morning, that's our hope. And so it is possible to acknowledge truths about Jesus. But until we have to surrender to him, until we have to go all the way to actually follow his words and follow his life we can stop short. So when Jesus calls his disciples in the first uh, chapters of Mark, he calls them to do what? To drop their nets and follow him. He is changing their old way. There's a distinction from you were doing this, now your life is going to look like this. We even see it in that list of disciples, and he actually changes Simon's name to Peter. It's an identity change that happens in his life. So the reality is that you and I don't have to give up our control our identity and work, our security and finances, our racism, our pride, our people approval, as long as just being a Christian is just giving cognitive assent to who we think Jesus is. So this is the difference. That kind of faith costs nothing and changes nothing. I know Jesus' words, I do things for Jesus, but I don't actually come where I have to come under the authority of Jesus, where I'd actually have to shift my trust from myself to him. It stop short. So this, my friends, is why it's so important to understand what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to follow Jesus? What is he actually calling us to? And I think throughout the book of Mark, you're going to hear this question come up over and over again, but Jesus is going to Is going to call people to ask the question personally, who do you say I am? And that's the question I think is before us. Who do you personally say I am? So a thread that's going to go throughout this message today is the good news of Jesus isn't us trying to follow Jesus in order to be saved. It is a call from him to follow this servant king that changes our life. So when we follow the servant king, it quite literally changes our life. That being said, let's uh, look at Mark 3. We're going to pick up in verse 7. So starting in verse 7, we see that Jesus withdraws to the sea. He's with his disciples, and this great multitude of Galilee is coming out from Judea and beyond the Jordan. So they're, they're hearing about what Jesus has done. They're, they're hearing about all he's done, and they're coming to him. And as a result, verse 10 for he had healed many, and with the result that all of those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. So if you can imagine a great crowd who is not just uh, gathering politely all along the, the edges and, where do you want us to sit? Is row F eight? Uh, is, that, is that my seat? No, a crowd pressing in around him. Why is that? You and I take for granted that we can go. If we have an affliction, we go to where? We go to a, a hospital. We go to an urgent care. We go someplace like that. But even the most basic of illnesses, an in-and-out procedure in our day, would not have been that way then. And so you hear of all these illnesses and all these things, and this this guy is healing these things that you've been walking with for years. You are not just going to politely just go up to him. So the crowd is literally pressing in on him. I want you to think about remember when the, the Beatles came and there's video of the Beatles coming and then all the all the young teenagers are coming out and they're shaking their car and they have to have like security because the crowd is doing what? Pressing in on them. It's like the believers at a Justin Bieber concert, okay? This is what I want you to picture. This isn't like a polite crowd. They're they're coming in, they're pressing in. And they're doing this because they want to use Jesus. This is very important. I I think most of the crowd is coming in because they want something from Jesus. Not that they want to know exactly who he is. So Jesus has two things happening. The crowds who are pressing in. This actually speaks to Jesus' humanity. We very uh, rarely talk about Jesus as, as being human, as having humanity. But the crowd quite literally could have crushed him. So he has this boat behind him just in case the crowd is about to crush him. So there's two things going on. The crowds are endangering him. And then let's look at verse 11. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him earnest, and they would say, You are the Son of God. So he has two of these things going. So Jesus strategically withdraws and goes up the mountain. In Luke 6, it says that he withdraws for the whole night to pray about who he is going to choose. But there's a reason why I think Jesus is withdrawing here. I think Jesus understands at this moment that he has limited time with uh, those around him on earth. And he needs to be more strategic about what he is doing in his ministry. See, he is not going to let the crowds define who he is and what his ministry is about. And he is also not going to let the demons give testimony to who he is. He is going to be the one that does that. So he's not going to let the crowds determine what his ministry is going to be about, what he spends all of his time doing. He's not going to let the demons be the ones that proclaim who he is. So with 30 months or so to go, he has limited time. And in front of him are the temporary needs of the crowd, of all those who want to be healed. But Jesus also sees the internal investment he needs to focus on. So by saying no to the immediate of the crowd, the pressures of the crowd, he's actually saying yes to something far greater of him actually investing in who? The 12. And so healing the crowd is a good thing, but there's a greater investment that he chooses to make. So what does Jesus do? Look at verse 13 with me. So in verse 13, it says that he went up to the mountain and summoned those he himself wanted, and they came to him, and then he called them to be with him, that he would send them out to preach. So Jesus had many disciples from different accounts. We we realize that Jesus had uh, possibly hundreds of disciples. They send it out. We know at least had seventy-two, he's sending out seventy-two, two by two, he's sending out disciples. But these are the 12 that will become the apostles, the sent ones, that would be the foundation of the church that we read about in Acts and that the the gospel is primarily going to spread through, um, who we actually live in the legacy of these these men of the church. But I want to make this really tangible for us today. See, if we are to follow Jesus, our priorities should be shaped by his priorities say that again. If we are to follow Jesus, then our priorities should be shaped by his priorities. Our lives should be shaped by what his life looked like. So when you ask somebody, you come up and and you talk, maybe you just did this at meet and greet. You talk to somebody, you say, hey, how you doing? How you doing? And they say, fine, right? And then they say, what was that? Busy. I'm really busy, And that's true. Like, so much of our life is filled with so many different things. How many of you have had this happen? Like, someone invites you over for dinner, and you start pulling out your calendar on your phone. And you're like, yeah, that week's bad. That week's bad. You're, like, scrolling. You're like, well, in two months, I can fit you in for, like, an hour and a half. Is that cool? Like, I mean, that's, like, literally what happens with us, Right. So the thing is, is we have all of these things, all of these things that we're saying yes to. And the reality is that many times when we say yes to so many different things, the things that are actually of most importance are the things that we're too tired to actually do, or too busy to actually schedule in. So this past Thursday, I had our staff team help me out and create a list of all the the temporary pressures around us that we feel like we should be doing like good things that are kind of pressing in that we feel like we should be giving our time to, things that we should be signing up for, things that we should have in our lives. What are all these good things that we're doing? So I want you to actually do this. If you have a pen and paper, I actually want you to, to just write down, just take a couple minutes. What are the f- things that you feel like you should be doing or you should be getting your kids involved in? Or uh, if you're empty nesters, things you should be seeing around the world? Or, or what is just your list of just the temporary pressures that you just feel like you should be doing more of? Like I should be in this, I should do this, I should, sign that, I should work out more. What is that list? Just start making that list. If you don't have a pen and paper, just start making that list in your head. Just want you start making a list. I'm going to go get my list that we came up with the staff. Okay. So this is my big, big bad boy list right here. Okay. So we we just spent it didn't take us it didn't take us long at all. But let me just uh, that worked a lot better than I thought it was going to. So really excited about that. So here's the thing. A lot of good things are pressing in around us to do. Oh, I should get my kids into into music lessons, or, um, oh, you know, I'm not part of that. I need to do that. Oh, my family events. I need to, birthday parties. We said two birthday parties this weekend. Oh, gymnastics. Oh, you know what? I saw a group on for that. Our our kids, we should take advantage of that. I should should be in community. I should do all these things. You know what? I need to work out. I I need to join a gym. I need to do all those things. Um, Pretty soon, I mean, are any of you like looking at this list, and you just immediately get exhausted? And pretty soon, right, parents, of young kids, or wherever you're at, you feel like an Uber service, just char- just taking kids around, right? You just feel like, oh, when's that? And then, and then with your spouse, you feel like you're just flying by the this night. Like, okay, let's coordinate uh, calendars, and it takes forty-five minutes. But it's true. It's just like these are all these things that are begging for our time that are good things. Like we need to be in community or we need to be in Bible study. Or you know what? I haven't been in a men's group. I need to join that. That's actually good. And you actually might be looking at this list and being like, oh, I forgot. I actually should be doing that, right? (laughs) And I just found out about this Lego club that there supposedly exists. And I love Legos. My kids love Legos. I don't know why I'm not in a Lego club. But if anyone's in a Lego club, give me some details on that. But the reality is, is if we say yes to all of these good things, these pressing needs, Rob and I were talking, it's just like, man, and then you feel like if you're not busy and you're having a meal together as a family five days a week, you feel guilty. Like you start to feel, man, maybe I'm like neglecting my kids from like having a life or something. Like they're not in travel soccer or they're not learning violin or they're not fill in the blank, right? Right. And this is just the good that we could fill our lives with. But then the the thing that would happen is we would get home and we would be so exhausted that to spend time with our kids or to spend time with our wives or those type of things would go what? On the back burner. And we'd be so exhausted we would just go to sleep. Or we'd just binge watch something on Netflix. (laughs) Because the reality is... If our priorities should be shaped by the priorities of Jesus, then he shows us that relational investment in those that he has given to us to steward, those who are closest to us, those who are co-workers, those who are family members, those who are our children, should be priority. But we can so fill our time with so many different things that we just get exhausted. And then next thing we know, our kids are 18. Next thing we know, we're trying to fill up our time just to stay busy. So I want to talk about this list. I want to talk about this in the, in the idea of, hey, hold on to that list for me, Phil. Um, but the reality is, is if our priorities should be matched by Jesus' priorities, um, Melissa and I uh, heard a message by Andy uh, Stanley. Uh, this was years ago. This is when Luke was really young. I don't even know if Luke was even born when we heard this. But he was talking about how do you set priorities for your family? And he says, sometimes saying no is saying no for now, but not forever. Because there's something greater that is driving your family. There's something greater, there's a greater purpose that's driving. And I remember that just stuck out for us of, it would be so easy for us to have Weston in soccer, to have Luke in soccer, to have them do this and do that. And then, you know what? We'd be trying to have dinner at different times. And then we're just like shoving sandwiches down their faith and all that, you know, all that kind of stuff. But the reality is, is we, we, it has shaped like, some of our conversations about when our kids are young. And I, you know, I, don't, I have opportunities to travel. I have opportunities to go on global trips and all those things. And I just said, you know what? No for now, but not forever. Because saying no to some of the good things that are temporary, that are pressing in around us, is actually saying yes to the greater investment that we have before us. And so what I want us to do is just tangibly talk about what does that look like? What does that look like for us to be shaping our priorities around this? Well, the truth is, this, this, this is a simple truth, but what we love most, we prioritize first. What we love most We prioritize first. Let me give you an example of this. I could say I love Tennessee football, but let me clarify this for an example. I don't love Tennessee football. I hate their hideous orange color. This is for sermon analogy. Too soon, guys, too soon, too soon. Defending too many right now. But I could say I love Tennessee football, right? But if I never watched the games, I don't know who any of the players are. I don't even know how many points a touchdown is. What would you conclude about my life? Do I actually love Tennessee football? You would say no. Let's make it a little bit closer to home. I could say I love my wife and kids. But when you start looking at the priorities of your calendar, you start looking at how much time you spend with your kids in undivided attention, or when's the last time you went on a date night, or do you have meals together, or do you do shifts in the night? When you start looking at your calendar, does that actually evidence in your priority of your time? And then when we start talking about our faith, we can say, I love Jesus. But when our priorities are shaped by so many other things that we don't have time for this, doesn't that start pointing to something of a different nature? Let me give you some bad news. This isn't a sermon about, here, make a list of prioritizing Jesus and go do it. The reality is is you and I cannot prioritize the thing that we're called to do the most without him. We will always choose the path of least resistance. We will always choose the path of selfishness. We will not choose the things that Jesus calls us to on our own. We will not do it. So the thing that I want us to talk about is what does it start to look like in order to have Jesus' priority shape us? We need the one who has perfectly submitted to his Father's will in all things to help us and shape how we listen to the Spirit guiding our lives. We need him in all things. So let's look at verse 14. Let's pick back up. Verse 14. And he appointed the twelve so that they would be this key phrase. What is he calling them to? To be with him, that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, then he goes on to list the twelve, which we heard earlier. Now, Jesus calls and and he appoints the disciples. Now, this is uh, just to give you some background in this uh, history of how uh, rabbis called their disciples. First of all, rabbis didn't call their disciples. What ended up happening was, is students, these Jewish students would get in where they learn Torah. They start memorizing the first five books of the Old Testament. They would start learning all these things. And then if they were the best of those students in in that grade age, like elementary age, then they would go on to more education where they would learn more. And if they were the best of the best of that, then they would go on to the last where if they were the best of the best of the best, then they would go and apply to be a follower, a learner of a rabbi, to actually learn his ways and to become a rabbi one day eventually. But if you didn't make the best of the best of the best, what did you end up doing? You end up doing the family business, such as a fisherman or some other trade. And so when Jesus is calling his disciples, what do we see them doing, the early disciples? Some of them are doing what? They're fishermen. So what is that saying? They're not the best of the best of the best, right? They. They didn't have, they didn't have, they're not the Ivy League students. So instead of these disciples applying to be Jesus' disciples, what does Jesus do? He chooses. Now, this is fascinating. This has so many implications to our faith and to what the gospel actually is. Let me just start unpacking some of these. He chooses. Now, this list should actually encourage us because some of us in this room are like, "Well, I don't have what it takes. I don't deserve to be to be His." You know, you start you feel like you're not enough. Let this list be an encouragement to you. The call and appointment of Jesus shows that following Him is different than any other religious system up to this date and since. Every other religious system in the world that I have studied or that I know of is based around the idea that I have to do or live a certain way in order to earn this God or God's acceptance or in order to earn my way into the afterlife. That is every uh, religious system that is, is, is out there. It is always based around works or trying to do enough of a good thing or enough of the way that the, the religion is, is calling for in order to be an acceptance. But that only breeds insecurity because it only breeds insecurity because this. If it's based on your performance and we just look at our lives, we would certainly say, but I have failed over and over and over again. And then we would be just asking the question, well, how much is enough? And then how many failures is he going to put up with? And then we're just trying to strive more and more and try to do more good things to outweigh the bad. But that is not what Jesus is calling his disciples to. He is actually choosing them, which is actually showing us that he is calling. He is the one doing the initiating. And anything and everything they need to be with him is provided in him, not in them. It is not in their list or their what their morality or what they have done. It is in who? The one who is doing the calling. Now that's that's a very simple concept, but this has so many implications for us. Because how do we usually view the Christian life? I want you to think, if you've placed your faith and trust in Christ, and if you responded to his calling, recognizing you you needed a Savior, and you've put your trust in him, when was that? When you're six, when you're 20, when you're 30, when you're 40? I want you to just think about when that was. So typically, when we come to faith, we have this realization that we we needed a savior, and we and we put our we put our faith in him. But then very quickly, we realize that we're supposed to be um, following Jesus, who's supposed to be doing doing more good things, and supposed to be doing uh, all these things to what become more like Jesus. I mean, what would have been really helpful if we would have had a, a bracelet or something that said like you know ask yourself this question: What would Jesus do? Like if we would have had that, that would have been super super helpful. That was a joke. But the thing, the, thing, the thing for us, honestly, is, is what we end up doing. We come to faith recognizing our need for Jesus. But very quickly, what it turns into is I need to do a bunch of good things to become more like Jesus. So I need to serve my neighbor. I need to do this. I, need to, I know I'm not supposed to do this, but I know. You know and you're, and you're, just, you're trying to do it all on your own strength. And the thing that we end up growing into is that we end up making it about what we're doing rather than what has been done for us. So when we say, what does it mean to be a follower? What does it mean to be a Christian? Those of you who haven't come to faith, you might be asking the question, what do I need to do to to be saved, to be a Christian, to follow Jesus? Whatever language you, you have for this. But let me just be very clear. The most important aspect to grasp is not what you do, but what has been done for you. See, is the call, like we, we, we read over it really quickly, but look at verse 14 again. And he appointed the twelve so that they would do what? So that they would be with him. First and foremost, it is a call to be with him. And it is out of this withness of Jesus that we are to live. So if you were to talk to someone and ask them, hey, how are you doing in the, in the whole Christian thing? And their response were along the lines of, well, I'm trying to be or I'm striving to be a good Christian, then that person has missed the fundamental thing, core, of what it means to be a Christian. So your Christian is one who has not earned or achieved, but is one who has been called and responded to what has been done for them in recognizing their need for Jesus and has been so changed by the work of Jesus. So the call that Jesus gives to his disciples is a call to be his, to be identified as his disciples, and to be with him. And out of that new identity, he appoints them to a task. But look at look at verse fifteen. Even the task that he gives them to preach, who are they preaching? They're not preaching about themselves. They're preaching about him. Even that. In verse 14, the authority to cast out demons, even the authority that they need is not their own authority, but whose authority? It's the authority of Jesus given to them as they're called to be with him and to be his. So the beauty and the good news of the gospel of Jesus is compelling because instead of man trying to reach God and earn our way to him, he came to us. We can know where we stand with God and can know God Christ loved us before we loved him, Romans 5.8. And he loved us based on not what we could offer him or about who we are or what kind of resume we had, but based on him calling and choosing. So let's define what it means to be a follower of Jesus. A follower of Jesus is a person who is following Christ, is one who is being changed by Christ, and is walking with Jesus and committed to his mission through the power of the Holy Spirit. So a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, is one who is being changed by Christ, walking with him, and committed to the mission, of his mission through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is a call, first and foremost, to be with him. The gospel, in essence, is we get to be with God. Not just a call to, to do, but a call to be with and out of our witness with him, we actually do. So what does he call his disciples to? They can't do it in his own authority, but only in him. We cannot live the life God calls us to in our own strength. I mean, we clearly understand this. If we just boil it down, we clearly understand when, when, when Jesus calls, and Jesus has commands. It's not just the Old Testament that has commands and laws. Jesus has commands and laws. And so when he calls me to love others as I love myself, I can't, I very quickly realize I cannot do this. When he calls me to love my enemies and bless my enemies, I really quickly realize I cannot do this in my own strength. So the very thing that he is calling me to is actually showing my need for him. Because I can't. And it's only through him that I could. We need to follow the one who modeled for us what it looks like to obey perfectly. So where we put our trust in ourselves is actually a really misplaced place to put your trust. Because who has failed you more than anyone else in the world? You. So this is a call to actually shift our trust from ourselves, our system, our performance, our resume building, to him and the work that he has done. Tim Keller has this great resource on the book of Mark. that I would encourage you guys to do and just follow along uh, with us through it. It's called Jesus the King. There's this paragraph that is so compelling. It says, Jesus is saying, come follow. Jesus is saying, follow me because I'm the king you've been looking for. Because I am the authority over everything. Yet I've humbled myself for you. Because I died on the cross for you when you didn't have the right beliefs or the right behaviors. Because I have brought you news, not advice to live up to. Because I'm your true love and your true life, follow me. Jesus Christ's kingship will not crush you, but he was crushed for you. He followed the path to death and you can follow his path into his arms. Let me read that last line. Jesus Christ's kingship will not crush you, but he was crushed for you. And he followed the path to his death and we can follow his path into his arms. So what are the implications of this calling to follow him, to be his? It means that God is calling you to respond to him, initiating towards you to be with him. It means that when you follow him, you're putting your trust, not in yourself, but in him. And when you put your trust in him, he who have been brought from death to life. And literally, the presence of God indwells you through his spirit. It means that you do not have to perform for your acceptance any longer. It means that no one apart from Jesus can shape your identity. How others perceive you or how they think about you or what they say has no eternal weight. It means your identity, value, worth is rooted not in your career achievements, not in your relational status, not in your net worth, not in your physical beauty, not in your educational level, not in your athletic ability, not where you live, not how much you have in your bank account, not what you drive or your social standing. It is really solely in the completed work of Jesus Christ see, the good news of Jesus is not trying to follow Jesus in order to be saved. The good news of Jesus is a call to follow this King who so changes our lives. So let's come back full circle to where we began. The reality is, is that you don't have to give up your control. Your identity and work, your security and finances, your racism, your pride, your people approval, as long as being a Christian is just cognitive assent. But if we are to follow him where he goes, if we are to follow him and be with him, the question before us is, will you shift your trust to him from yourself? And that calls into question everything that we put our trust in. You see, then we have to answer, who is this Jesus that actually beckons my whole life, that actually wants to shape my whole life? Who is that Jesus that actually would come From the throne of heaven and come down here and initiate towards me. What is that Jesus calling me to? He is calling me to my whole life live for Him wholly by His power and His strength. See, when we understand the gospel, we believe and repent, it does not leave us in a stagnant place. Rather, the opposite. The good news of Jesus so moves us because we realize we've been initiated towards, moved towards, and called and chosen that the gospel, in essence, is mission. The gospel in essence is the father sending the son and the son now sending us as witnesses and representatives into this world saying there is one that is calling you to and I have the good news of Jesus. I have the beauty of the gospel that I would love to share with you because it's so compelling and it's so shaping my life and my priorities. I can't help but share with you, neighbor. I can't help but share with you, coworker. We have a message to carry into our world, and we haven't been appointed and called. To do so, and would we respond with our whole lives? Jesus, where you go, would we desire? Would you change our desire to be with you in those places? That you would so shape even how we live in those places that we cannot follow you in our own strength. And that is actually good news because our security is not based in our performance, but is based in Him. And that is the most securing of places to be, because our confidence is not in ourselves. Our confidence is the one who empowers us to do the mission that he called us to to follow him but following him is out of our identity which our identity is now in him and our identity is now with him we are called to be with god and what a better place i cannot think of than being would you stand with me and respond as a prayer to follow him in this way